glad that you're joining us today. If you're here in person or if you're uh, watching this online, we do have several that catch up with us online later on. And we want to welcome you here to Grace Fellowship Church. Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 9 most of the time today. To lay hold of Christ is our subject this morning. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians about laying hold of Christ, he said there were a lot of things that to him as a Jewish man, a very highly educated Jewish man, he said there were many things that he could have in his flesh considered gain. Many things he could have held on to. The types of things that people usually love about other people or tend to give praise toward other people. He said, I had all those things. He said, but when I was confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when I was confronted with Jesus Christ, he said, I came to consider all those things that were gained to me at one time, I considered them as loss as compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he says, he has laid aside all those things. And he says, so that I may lay hold of that by which I was laid hold of through Christ. Paul says, I want to lay hold of Christ above everything else in life. That is my one goal, that I would finish the race and that every step of the way I would lay hold of Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Everything else that gets in the way of that, Paul would say, is to be considered rubbish. I don't know how many of your Bibles say that in Philippians, the book of Philippians. He says, I consider all these things as rubbish. To me, that sounds like, an, like a proper English term, Right? Not really an American English term. We don't call trash cans rubbish bins, right? Trash cans. But that's literally what it says. I consider all those things that were gained to me as trash, as garbage. Some versions of scripture call it a dung hill, a dung heap. Do you want to, do you desire laying hold of Christ? every day is that your desire is that your overarching desire as a Christian to lay hold of Christ brothers and sisters we're going to discover this morning that it's very easy for people to miss Jesus in our pursuits even in our good pursuits, even in our, in our Christian pursuits, it is very easy for people to lose sight of Christ and not lay hold of Him, but as Romans chapter 9 shows us this morning, but to actually stumble over Him. There's a difference between stumbling over Him and laying hold of Him. And I hope that today, our time in God's Word you begin even more today to see the difference between stumbling over Christ and laying hold of Christ. It might seem like a very fine line of difference, but that's what we want to understand today through 
the scripture. So in Romans chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 33 this morning. And if you haven't been with us in this series, you can always go back to uh, our website or our YouTube. We have some videos still on our YouTube channel that you can go uh, and look at. We send these out every week after the service. And so for people who, whose email addresses we have, uh, we send out those messages every week. So just in case you couldn't be here or people are traveling or people are sick, especially uh, we've been dealing with in the last year and a half, we have tried to take advantage of that technology and, and given that, putting that into people's hands. And, and people like James um, and Ryan uh, make sure that this happens every week by setting up the camera and, and then Emily puts it all together on Sunday afternoon. So we're really blessed by these folks who do this work every week and we appreciate them. But if you haven't been able to, to get the greater context of Romans 9, you can always go back and, and listen to the prior few messages so that you get an idea of where we are. But at the, we're at the very end of Romans chapter 9. This has been, as I mentioned last week, probably one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible for people to, to understand. And, and I don't mean just like mentally understand. I, I mean in your faith, like deal with these issues and these principles that are brought up here in Scripture. That idea that God chooses, that He elects people to salvation. Uh, the idea that, that we're saved completely by grace. And even though we say that a lot, we sometimes forget that what that means is that we bring nothing to the table. God doesn't save us based upon uh, uh, our works or our righteousness or anything that we do. He freely chooses us by His grace. He chooses us from among all of the other earthen vessels that have been created, wholly by His grace. So when we come to verses 25 through 33, we're going to discover how it is that certain people who thought they belonged to the elect body of God's nation of Israel, how is it that they, in New Testament times, can be said by Paul and by others apostles to have missed the mark. They have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How can that be if they're part of God's chosen nation? Well, starting in verse 25, follow along in your Bible with me as I read. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place... Where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his works upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled 
over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we open up your word, we know that your spirit speaks to your people. Father, we ask that you would still our hearts this morning, that we would take a moment, however brief, to be still before you and to listen, to wait, to hear your word. God, teach us this morning what it means to lay hold of Christ, your son. And that anything short of laying hold of him, Father, we would consider as rubbish. Give us a hunger, not only for your word, but for the presence and the power of Jesus in our hearts, in our lives. And give us a holy dissatisfaction for everything else that the world offers that we might know him and make him known. In Jesus' name, amen. To lay hold of Christ, how do we do that? Especially considering the fact that the Lord says here, that he placed a stumbling stone that is Christ. He places a stumbling stone, verse 33 says, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The stone of stumbling and the rock of offense is mentioned in many other places in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And... The first place I want you to see is in Roman, in, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. One of the prophets, the Old Testament. And you're going to notice how the Apostle Paul here in the New Testament, though he's an apostle and not a prophet, he really is acting like an Old Testament prophet. He's warning people of something. That's what prophets did, right? They warned Today, when, when people talk about prophets, they usually think that prophets are kind of like fortune tellers. Um, you know, they tell the future. Like, they make guesses, and if a prophecy comes true, then they're a true prophet, doesn't, there doesn't, whatever. But the prophets in, in Scripture were more of prosecutors than they were foretellers. They would, they would see things that people couldn't see. You might be that type of person in your family or in your marriage or with friends. You can see things before other people do. You, you, you want to warn people. You're maybe the conscience of your family. There are people that God gives to the church like that who are burdened about things that God word says, God's word says about certain things and they feel that it's their duty, their calling to make the body of Christ aware of those things. So you're going to hear this spirit of prophecy in the Apostle Paul as he warns his brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, those New Testament Jews with whom he's sharing the gospel in Rome and other places. But in Isaiah chapter 8, we see in verse, starting in verse 11, and we're going to read through verse 17. For thus the Lord spoke to me, 
with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, both, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who has hidden his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. God has a way, brothers and sisters, of getting his people's attention. He says here, literally, that he places a stumbling stone. That word in the Greek is is scandalon. It's related to our word, it's a cognate in the English called scandal. Sometimes when we think of scandal, what do we think of? Think of gossip, don't we? Like in our culture, in our, in our context, when we think of a scandal, we go, oh, that's going to be scandalous. We think people are going to talk. <laughs> right? When this gets out, it's going to create a what? Scandal. It's going to be scandalous. But in the way that... that it's used in scripture. That term scandal means more like a, a, the, the baiting of a trap. That's what that word scandalon meant. It was the bait that someone would put in a trap. And so it, it begs the question, why in the world would God work this way to where he's baiting a trap for his own people? He's placing this stone of stumbling that is Jesus Christ in the midst of of his people. Now, we're warned as Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and I think also in Romans uh, chapter 14 somewhere, that as Christians, we are not to place in the path of other believers stumbling blocks. Have you ever heard that phrase? Someone might say, well, you don't want to be a stumbling block to your brother or sister. So be careful how you live. Be careful what kind of choices you make. Because it's not just about your liberty as a Christian. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He warns believers in Corinth who are just kind of living however they want to. Because they think, after all, I'm saved by grace. Right? So I can eat this meat. I can do this thing. I can live this way. I'm, I'm saved by the grace of God. And Paul warns. In 1 Corinthians 8 9, take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a, and here's the, here's the word again, a stumbling block to the weak. That word, scandalon, again. We see this idea again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says that people are looking for something attractive. People are looking for something to really fill their cup in a fleshly sense. And he says, and the gospel doesn't do it. He says, the gospel is, is contrary to human wisdom. And so if you think that by sharing the gospel with your friends, they're just going to be like, oh, wow, that's exactly what I've been looking for. You might be disappointed. Because the way the gospel works when you share it with people, when you tell people about Jesus, is the Holy Spirit has to do something supernatural in their life. It's called illumination. The Holy Spirit has to speak to them. 
when they open up that Bible that you put before them, the Holy Spirit has to speak. They have to hear that voice. Otherwise, the gospel, Paul says, is foolishness to the Greek, that is the philosopher, the reasonable person, right? The nations, the Gentiles. But he says to the Jew, the gospel is a what? Stumbling block. Stumbling block. It's a scandal. A rock of offense. However, this same rock that is offensive to so many, Jesus says to his church, you will be built upon this rock. This cornerstone. Paul's going to say later, be careful how you build. There's only one foundation, and that's Jesus Christ. Be careful. So the stone, the Bible says, that the builders rejected is the chief cornerstone. He's a stone of stumbling. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to see this. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it there. 1 Peter chapter 2. We get a sense of the new people of God, the church. Peter's going to use this Old Testament language, excuse me, to describe the New Testament church, to describe us here at Grace Fellowship. He starts in verse 4. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, towards the end of your New Testament. Starting in verse 4, he says, talking to the church, and coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then, verse 7 says, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a beautiful description of the church. I get so excited when I think about what God is doing in Maricopa for such a time as this. I saw a report the other day that um, if we just, if you were to fill all of the permits, like if you were to just stop all of the building projects right now and say there are going to be no more developments, no more permits pulled in the city of Maricopa and all that we did would just fill the ones that were already pulled, there'd be 170 something thousand people in Maricopa. That's what I saw. I don't know if it's true or not. Okay, don't take that to the bank, but that's what I read. 
If they were to just stop everything that's planned and stop planning, 170-something thousand people. And as we get to know each other here at Grace Fellowship Church, we've been here for seven years, my family and I. As we get to know people from all around Maricopa, we see God is doing something special here. People from all areas of the world are here. Living next door to each other. Shopping with each other in the same checkout line. Sending our kids to the same school. Living in the same retirement communities. Playing golf on the same golf course or whatever it is that you do. Wherever you are. Isn't that amazing? He says here, we are choice stones. We were not a people before, but we are a people now. I get excited when I think about that. The diversity of the body of Christ here in Maricopa. God is making Grace Fellowship into a people. Into a community. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the thing that we have in common that matters. There's a lot of stuff that we think matters and that we lose sleep over that just doesn't matter. Right? You'll hear it sometimes when we have conversations with folks. Somebody from the southeast, southeastern United States, United States, <laughs> I'm thinking of Texas and steak. United States, they like some certain food and people up north, they, they prepare it a different way. I had an argument with a professor this last semester on salsa. That's an argument worth having, brother. No. But we do. We make, we make much about things that just don't matter. As we come together as a, as a church, we need to be focused on Christ. We need to not stumble over Christ. We need to lay hold of Christ as a church and make him central to everything that we do. And so he says here, we're being built up in verse 9. In verse 10, you once were not a people. Now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. Why? He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We stumble over Christ when we miss our mission mandate to proclaim the excellencies of him in the world. In our family, to one another, to our spouse, to our children, to our grandchildren. Folks, the overall mantra today is to, is to not, and, and it's, it's philosophically bogus. And we know that. When we hear people say, don't, don't manipulate your children. For instance, for those of you who have children, don't raise your children a certain way. You're going to send them in a direction that they wouldn't naturally go. Keep your hands off of them and just let them find their way. I literally heard someone, a Christian sister, years ago in a Bible study. She was talking about that verse. Train up your child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. And put a whole new spin on it. And said, so here you see, Scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go. Not he should go, but he should go. That is, let them determine. So don't, don't force them to go to church. Don't pray at the table. Don't open up your Bible with them. Let them find their way. If you let your friends and your children and your loved ones find their way, 
They're going to find the way of the world. Train up a child in the way he should go. We have to purposefully as a church lay hold of Christ. We as believers must lay hold of Christ. If we just walk around throughout life not paying attention, we will stumble over Him. And you don't want to stumble over Christ. So how do we keep from stumbling? How do we lay hold of Him? The first thing we notice, we go back to Romans, to our text in Romans, verse 25 and 26. Actually, just 25 through 29. And we know this already if, we, if we're familiar with our New Testament, and if you're familiar, if you're in the faith. Salvation is by what? Grace. Remember those prepositions. By grace, that is God is the, God is the initiator. He gets the ball rolling. We don't. Salvation is by grace through what? Faith, not of works or yourself. Now we know this from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. But you're going to see it right here again. And this is as Paul is talking to his, this largely Jewish audience. He's going to remind them of what God said in the Old Testament. Through the prophets. This would not have been a surprise for them. They would have been familiar with these texts from Isaiah and from Hosea. So he describes how grace and faith works. He says in verse 25, He, that is God, says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. To remind you of John 1, He came to His own, but those who were, who were His own did not receive Him. But to as many as received Him, as many as laid hold of Him, to them, He gave the right to become children of God. Only through Christ. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying this is the way God works. God is going to extend salvation to people who have never lifted a finger in temple worship. Ever. They've never done anything to copy and transcribe the Old Testament law. He's going to extend salvation to them. And there are going to be those within the nation of Israel who have done all of these things. Who participated in all these things that point to Jesus. And they're not going to be saved. How is that? Because salvation is by grace. Through faith. He says again, verse 27, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Now, you remember the promises to Abraham. This is why so many in Paul's audience would say, Well, wait a minute. We're children of Abraham. We're the seed of Abraham. We can trace back our blood lineage to 
Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he was going to multiply his seed as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, so shall your descendants be. Paul's going to say, yeah, that's true. But when God said that to Abraham, those stars and that sand were people who had the faith of Abraham, who believed the word of God. Not those who were just involved in the, the nation of God's people. So it's by grace, through faith, that's how we lay hold of Christ. By grace, through faith. Again, verse 27 harkens back to what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter. He says, I wish that I could be accursed for my brethren. I wish that all of my people would be saved. But then he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Verse 27 explains what he means by that. God's promise to Abraham didn't fail. God didn't change his mind. He was talking about those who respond to his word in faith, who do what Abraham did when he was in his 70s. And God said, leave everything that you've invested in, leave your entire reputation, your hometown, your family, take your stuff and go this direction. And Abraham picked up his stakes and he went. And those who are the true seed of Abraham are those who, when are presented with Jesus, they take hold of him. They don't trip over him. They don't stumble over him trying to pursue righteousness through works. So it's by grace, through faith. In verse 28, he says, the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had held, had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. You know what he, he realizes there? Isaiah says, we're no different than everybody else. He says, when it comes to sin, and Paul has already explained this earlier in the book of Romans, how many have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. He says, he quotes Isaiah, he says, Isaiah got it. He said, if it weren't for God saving a remnant of us by his grace, way back then, we would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. We were as evil as they were in our hearts. Now, when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah and we read about what was going on in that city, it is repulsive. However, sin is sin in the eyes of God. Isaiah says, had it not been for God in his grace, looking upon all that miry clay and saying, I am going to save a few out of that. Isaiah says, had it not been for that, we wouldn't even be here. It's by grace through faith. And then finally we see, it's not of works. So I already knew that. I knew that from Ephesians. But look at what he says in verse 30 through 33. What shall we say then? How, how, what do we conclude? What do we conclude given what we already know? He says that Gentiles, 
who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, that is, the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Salvation is not of works. It is by faith. Can you imagine how scandalous this message would have sounded to a first century Jewish audience? That is offensive. That is offensive to say that Gentiles have access to God when they haven't lifted a finger. Some of them are enemies. They get access to God through the Messiah? Yeah. Because when the gospel is preached, it's preached as good news for whosoever believes. Whosoever believes. But it's about faith. Now, it's not as though the law is bad or evil. It's not as though the law of God uh, doesn't work. It's faulty. It's our posture toward the law. That's what we've been learning in Romans. It's our posture toward the law. When the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, you know, I, I tried to keep the law as best I could. And then when I, when I brought the law before me and I read it and I discovered, oh, wait a minute, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, I recognize that what I've been doing, the way I've been living is actually contrary to God's law. God's actually spoken something that has to do with my sin. Okay, so I'll try to do better. <laughs> he said, I, I wish I could say to you that in my trying to do better and my knowledge of the law, I did get better. He said, but what I realized is this, my sin got bigger. I recognized more than ever that I was a sinner. And I came to this conclusion, there's only one hope for me, to cry out to God for mercy, to, to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And he says in chapter seven, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Anyone, anyone can be touched by the Holy Spirit and be awakened to that truth, Jew or Gentile. But there's no way we come into a right relationship with God by attempting to be righteous through our works, our merits. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now it's interesting in Psalm 118, the Old Testament describes Israel as the builders. We saw it again in 1 Peter. But in Psalm 118... And I'm just going to read this and then um, I'm going to have some really quick points before we close I want to share with you. 118 verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. If we go through the Gospels and we read about the way Jesus was received, or better yet, not received, by the law keepers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are those builders. These are the masters. These are the ones who, who knew the word of God, who were looking for the Messiah, but who rejected Jesus when he came. But they were builders. Wise builders. Uh, I think, and I shared this with you a couple weeks ago, kind of this illustration of building materials on a job site. I used to be in construction uh, for years and when you come onto a job site whether it's a residential or commercial job site there's usually a general contractor who will at least be there at least one day out of the week to see if things are going well you would hope if you go up to the general contractor you should be able to ask them a question about the materials being used right hey what materials are being used for this building um, where do they go? Do you have what you need? Etc. There shouldn't be a pallet or a stack of anything on the job site that if you were to take the general contractor to that pallet and ask them, what is this for? There should be no reason for them to ever be like, I have no idea. I have no idea where that's going. I really don't. I've never even seen anything like that before. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't belong here, I don't think. No, usually everything on the job site, the general contractor would know, this goes there, this is important, this goes there, you know, whatever. That would be the case with a master builder, a general contractor. But imagine there was something on the job site that was so important for the building of a house or a building. It was so important that the house could not be built without it. That the house would be out of square. It wouldn't last. It would fall down just over a short period of time. Imagine there were a, a material like that on the job site somewhere and it never, ever got used. And the general contractors, it's not as though, I mean, you would assume, well, how did this not get used were they just not showing up to work were they not putting eyeballs on the place there's some gcs that'll do that they'll you know spend all the day in their truck on their cell phone or something like that and not put eyes on the job but let's just assume they are they're there they're physically there and and every day they walk around the building and they're walking and they're looking they just they don't see it it's right there and they don't see it but they're walking. They're there. They're present. Walking is not enough. Walking in the vicinity of the chief cornerstone also in the Christian life is not enough. To live in a Christian, quote unquote, nation, to live in modern times where everyone has, everyone has a Bible the ability to read the Bible in their own language. We don't even have it on our, we have a, the convenience of having it on our iPads and our cell phones. We can listen to a podcast on the way to work with scripture. We can listen to someone in a 
James Earl Jones or a Charlton Heston voice reading the Old Testament to us or the gospel. Walking in the vicinity of the chief cornerstone is not enough. Not enough. Secondly, building is not enough. In the New Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees were workers. They loved the Word of God. They labored over the Word of God. The lawyers were sticklers about morality and ethics. They were working hard. You can be working hard on the building. You can be working hard on building up the church. You can be serving in the church. You can be working hard on building up a Christian family by making moral choices and things like that. You can still, in the process, stumble over Jesus Christ if He's not your personal Lord and Savior and Master. If you don't walk with Him daily and regularly and love Him and lay hold of Him, you will stumble over Him even in your busyness, even in your building. And as a church, we can do the same thing. We can make the mistake that so many churches do and be all about building and walking and all these good things and completely stumble over Christ. We have to lay hold of Him. Amen? We have to lay hold of Him. Opportunity is not enough. We can go through the entire book of Hebrews and see all of the shadows, all of the shadows that were given to God's people to be anticipating the Lamb, to be anticipating the tabernacle, to be anticipating the blood and the sprinkling and the atonement and all of those things. All of those things that hey, they had opportunity every day, every week to see it all fleshed out, all pointing to Jesus on the cross. And yet so many of them stumbled over Jesus. He's a cornerstone, but he's also a stumbling stone. And if we don't lay hold of him and make everything about him in our life, Though we have so many opportunities all around us to see him, we have signs, we have symbols, opportunities abound all around us. But opportunity is not enough. You were talking about parenting earlier and just kind of the differences between Christian parenting and I want to call it secular parenting. I'm just going to call it non-Christian or non-biblical parenting. But there's also something I hear a lot today we have to be careful as Christians not to fall into, and that is this. To think that our job, not just as parents, because you might not be a parent here, but we might think it's our job as this generation in the church. We might think that it's our job, our overarching purpose to provide opportunity for the next generation. I hear that all the time. We want to provide the next generation opportunity, 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 opportunity. I think that our, I think that this generation today has more opportunity than we have, than anyone has ever had. 
Yet we still have a wicked world. A wicked environment. A wicked culture. Folks, we don't need more opportunity. We need more Jesus. And I know that sounds trite and, and silly, but it's true. We need more of people laying hold of Christ. We need more churches laying hold of Christ. Not just having opportunities to do so if we so wish. But we need one another spurring each other on. Lay hold of Christ. Don't just keep him around in your life. But lay hold of him. Lay hold of him. We're saved when we lay hold of him. By grace, through faith, not of works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Let it be true for each one of us here, God, that we lay hold of your son. I know that nothing else is going to matter when we see you on that day, when we're in your presence, when we stand before the judgment seat. It is not going to be a matter of who was close of who had opportunity, of who was busy, of who was exhausted for good things, it is only going to matter who has laid hold of your son. So God, let it be for each one of us here to lay hold of Christ, to consider all other things, as the Apostle Paul says, as rubbish, as garbage, that we would press on and that our main goal would be to know him more. God, help us to be a church that is consumed not with busyness, not with opportunity, but God, with laying hold of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, that he would be central to everything that we do. God, that each family in this church, each individual, would be consumed with making Jesus the center of all things. Father, we thank you for your grace. If it were not for your grace, we would just as well also be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Father, teach us walk in your grace and continue to lay hold of Christ.